um, hear something and you think, well, that doesn't fit into my theology, go ahead and um, just bear with me, okay? It, it, it'll come together, I promise. And so Adam and Eve were created and were in the garden without sin. And they too were perfect. He, he created in the image of God. And then, of course, we know that the, uh, Adam sinned and brought sin into the world. A lot of people like to say it was Eve, but it was Adam that brought sin into the world, men, not Eve. And as a result, they were cast from the garden. That was a long time ago. But this is important because if Adam didn't exist, and if he didn't sin, that original sin, then we'd have no need for a Savior. And we would be here because we feel good, instead of because it's like kind of early on a Sunday morning. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of tired by Sunday, even now that I'm retired. And so... Uh, it is important. Some people teach that it's not uh, anything but a story, but you'll see why it's central to the message of the gospel. After they're thrown out of the garden, the, we see awful things. We see the mur first murder with Cain and Abel, and then we see the flood. And I want to tell you, before they were thrown out of the garden, the Lord made a promise to Adam and it's called the Adamic Covenant. And what he said is, uh, to the serpent, you're cursed, you're going to be on your belly. And the seed of Adam, that is his offspring, his progeny, will crush your head. Now, you may bruise his heel, but let's be honest, if you get a bruise on your heel, it's never as bad as getting your head crushed. <laughs> or, or in my case, hit by a truck going 30 miles an hour. And it's so, it's never as bad. In other words, the promise was that even though you've sinned and brought sin into the whole world, I'm going to deal with this. Sin continued, and so we see God destroying all of the earth with the flood. And we see that beginning in Genesis 6. So still very early on, a lot of people call the flood a fairy tale. There are reasons not to, but that's the subject of a full sermon and not just a few moments. And afterwards, the Lord uh, brings Noah and the animals off the ark, and he tells them to produce and create the world anew. And I'm paraphrasing an awful lot there, but this is the Noahic covenant, and is a sign that he'll never uh, destroy the world again. He puts a rainbow in the sky, and that, when we see a rainbow, that for Christians is a reminder that the Lord said, I will never destroy the world in this manner again. We continue going on through history. Uh, next big guy we see in is, uh, is uh, Abraham. Now Abraham, uh, his covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant. This isn't a sermon about covenants. This is just a quick progression. And God promises that uh, many things to Abraham in return for his, his faithfulness. And then um, those things happen. Through uh, Abraham's offspring, uh, Isaac, and then Jacob, uh, the Jewish people are born. And by the time there's a famine in, in the land, uh, they have to go to Egypt and they had sold their brother into slavery, and they don't know, but he's in Egypt. His name was Joseph. 
not the Joseph that was uh, Jesus' dad, but Joseph. And so this awful thing that happened to Joseph is the way God saves the Jewish people. At that time, there were only 70 nomads in the promise. That's what the Bible says. That's not, that's not a big crew. 70 people, no matter how tough they are, are definitely susceptible to raids, wars, obliteration. And so through this strange, this strange but divine uh, occurrence, uh, the people of Abraham are put in Goshen. And there they thrive, and over the course of about 400 years, they go from a band of 70 people to estimates of anywhere from one and a half to four million people strong. The only place on the planet at that time where 70 people could turn into more than a million was Egypt. And so God used Egypt as a divine incubator for his nation. And then he calls them out through Moses. This is, of course, the Mosaic Covenant. They're called out of Egypt. We're not going to be able to stick to that story very long. Perhaps I, I, there are some people who aren't familiar, but there's that famous movie, The Ten Commandments, and it's worth a watch, at least so you kind of have, get the gist of what happened. But they're called out, and uh, the nation of Israel is really truly begun. And they get the Ten Commandments and 603 other laws, or 613. Anyway, um, and God says, and I'm going to send you into the traditional land of your great, 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 great granddaddy Abraham, and you're going to take it over. And, I, and oh, by the way, I'm going to have you do something you're not really set up to do. You're not warriors, after all. You're your uh, shepherds, I'm going to have you kill everything in that land and take it over. So you're going to live in houses you didn't build. And you're going to harvest crops you didn't plant. Now, we'll leave that where it is for now. It says it in the Bible. I hope you believe it's uh, so and that I'm uh, sharing it with you honestly as it's written. And so they do that and they begin to conquer. First they cross over into Jericho. Mind you, they had to wait and wander in the desert for 40 years because even though God made this promise and they'd already seen many miracles, just for starters coming out of Egypt, uh, they still sinned against God. And uh, so a punishment was that all of the people of age were, had to die off in the desert and it was their young children that would be able to inherit the promise. And they do, they go into the promised land which is now the nation of Israel. And that's the nation we, we see today. It was promised to Israel. But it's important to note that it was also uh, based on a historical, uh, uncontested purchase of land by Abraham. When I say uncontested, uh, the people that are always going after Israel uh, don't contest it because they too say that Abraham's their father. In other words, there was a legal exchange of property and there was a history in the land uh, that they were going to possess. 
And so they're there. They go through uh, a number of things you can read about in the Old Testament. And they ask and clamor for a king like all the nations around them. The very nations that the Lord had had them destroy. And the Lord knew that they would do that, so he'd already made a provision for that, believe it or not. It's in the Bible. And so the, he uh, gives them what they want against, you know, his intent. That is to say, it wasn't the most ideal situation. They give him Saul, and Saul botches it. Saul, the first king, botches it horribly. And so the promise is passed on to a young shepherd boy named David. Now, David's story is also the Davidic covenant. And the reason I'm going through all of these is because we don't get to Acts without all these things happening. There's a promise after promise after promise, and they all lead to something. And the Lord promises through David that he's going to establish a kingdom that never ends. But we see, as David writes in, in Psalms, that it is not David himself, but his, his progeny, his children, grandchildren. And that's why when we go through the genealogy in the New Testament, it's important to note that Jesus had a claim to royalty because he was of the Davidic line. He is the fulfillment of that covenant. And so we get to an area we're probably all more familiar with, but along the way, um, there is also a promise, and it's in the book of Joel. Joel is one, considered one of the minor prophets. And that promise is what Warren read about this. Uh, well, that, that promise is what goes on between Acts 1.11 and Acts 2.42. And so now we're caught up. Jesus lives. He's born somewhere between uh, 3 B.C. and 3 A.D. And he, he lives for 30 years and has a three-year ministry. And then he dies a horrible, brutal death. But even though it was a just horrible death he didn't deserve, it is actually the crushing blow of that he, uh, against the enemy, Satan, that was promised in the Garden of Eden. Because after Jesus is tortured and beaten, and the Bible says, by his stripes we were healed. Isaiah said that uh, 800 years before Jesus was born. And, and, and but stripes, if, if you don't know, that means he was whipped with awful, horrible whips with bone chips and things like that in him. And... Um, Jesus becomes the one time for the rest of the world atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And so that same Jesus is raised from the dead, not of earthly power, but from above. And after three days, also fulfillment of prophecy, and they, the graves back then weren't like they are now. So if you've got a picture of some dude coming out of the grave, like in a Michael Jackson music video, that's not, that's not how he uh, came out. 
it was uh, it was a grave. If you ever have seen pictures of the grave, it was um, it's they're still in in they still exist today in Israel, um, and it's basically like a carve out or a cave with a big stone in front of it. And some of them are even smaller. There are some of these places where just the bones of the deceased are, and their their entrances are only about that big. But anyway. He is raised. The stone is rolled away. Jesus is raised from the dead bodily. And that's in fulfillment of Scripture too. Obviously, obviously there's so much to be said about his earthly ministry and we simply can't cover all of that and get out anytime before next year. And so... Jesus spends time with the disciples, according to Dr. Luke. Luke is a doctor. Did you all know that? He is a good, good, uh, educated uh, historian. If you think about it, he's writing of things that are occurring as he's writing them. That's the best kind of history. Although, uh, sometimes it's not so. It is in Luke's case because if you read his writing, you can see he's very precise both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. And so Luke um, is writing this guy, Theophilus, and he says that, yeah, after Jesus was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days continuing his earthly ministry, but it wasn't the same earthly mi ministry before uh, crucifixion. It was the post-resurrection ministry. In fact, in some accounts uh, in the gospel, he does some of the very same things that he did uh, when he was in, um, on, on earth before his crucifixion, like the breakfast with the fish. That's a good example of one we've, we've seen before. And that's important because he's saying, it's me. These are, these are also ways to say, yeah, well, you remember when we did this? Well, we're doing it again. Uh, the casting of the net and the fishing, that happens both pre- and post-resurrection. It's very interesting if you dig into it more. And then he ascends. After this ministry, he ascends. I want you to know, too, that while he was on earth, over 500 people with good reputations, saw him raised. They saw Jesus and said, that's the Jesus that was crucified, and he's living again. We have things that people take as gospel, pardon my saying so, uh, using the term, that have no eyewitnesses, but simply must be so because of the person who wrote them. Unimpeachable authorities. 500 human beings saw him risen. And that's a pretty good number. Well, among them, of course, were his 12 apostles or 12 disciples. The reason I skipped over what comes after 11 is it goes through this bungling where, where Peter gets up and in typical Peter fashion. Um, he's been... He had deceived Christ, but he was forgiven for that. But he says, we got to pick a 12th apostle. Now, the office of apostle is very different from the office of 
disciple. And so what do they do? They draw lots and they pick poor Matthias, who we never hear from again. <laughs> God, by the way, had somebody else in mind. His name was Paul, but we're not talking about Paul today. And so they do exactly what the Lord says. And they're in an upper room. And they're praying. Now Pentecost had come. Pentecost was, is a Jewish holiday. And because Jerusalem was still there, with the temple still there, people would come from all parts of the known world and celebrate this festival. And so that's what was going on. And then tongues like fire settled in on them. They began to speak in other languages, actual languages. And some people said, hey, I'm from, well, let's look at some of the places they were from. They were Cretans. No, there wasn't a pejorative back then like it is now. Arabs. Some were from Rome. Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Cyrene. I mean, they were Libya. So they were from the known world, and they heard these people who were given the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost speaking in their language and proclaiming the gospel. Of course, some wisecrackers said, uh, oh, golly, these guys are drunk. They're babblers. Uh, because if you don't know uh, some of these uh, languages, especially some of these are kind of lost to, to, to us now, then you, it probably sounds a little different to you. And Peter stands up and he says, wait, brothers and sisters, they're not drunk as you suppose. It's just the middle of the day. And, uh, you know, even though it's a holiday, we're, you know, we're not really drunk in the middle of the day, not really. And, and so he says, what this is, it is, this is what Joel talked about. And they're familiar with Joel. And so we see that in Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Wasn't even the middle of the day, sorry about that. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In those last days, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, now, uh, I don't 
I think there was a bloody moon that day, and I'm, I am aware that there are some Nostradamus-like uh, uh, apparitions that others are hoping for. And uh, some people, especially recently, have made a big deal about bloody moons. But what he's doing here is he's quoting the whole passage so that they know he's not taking it out of context. And what I'm doing is reading the middle part so that you know I'm not taking it out of context by having Warren jump right to verse 42. He then gives the story, and it's worth reading. We're definitely going to be out on time, and so I'll run through this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was, you know, you know, you think about it, there in Jerusalem, it's only been 40 days since the crucifixion and resurrection. I mean, it's just not possible to not know. In fact, it was so likely that they knew that you hear uh, when Jesus appears to a couple of the apostles on the road to Emmaus, uh, they say to him, well, you're coming from Jerusalem. I mean, how could you not know what just happened? And so uh, Peter is talking about that thing, and they know about that thing. Well, this man was handed over, meaning Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge with you with the help of wicked men. That's a picture. It's a, so what happened to Joseph, who ended up uh, becoming second only to Pharaoh is a picture of what happened to Christ. He, and so I, I love these pictures in the Old Testament which help us understand the things that happen in the New. And uh, wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then he quotes David where David prays and, and, and says, the Lord said to my Lord, the king, in other words, King David is calling somebody in the future his progeny, his Lord. So that's why I brought up the Davidic covenant. We see there where David understood just enough to understand that the Messiah was going to come through his line and that Jesus his offspring would actually be, and is actually his Lord, God incarnate. And so what happened is Peter continued with this great sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he went, he went for it. He said, so repent. And 3,000 people became believers that day. 3,000 people. 
That's a big revival. <laughs> well, that's a big, big revival, but it was also an awakening. We don't have to be too technical about that. For some of those people were certainly Jews, and the early church was made up of Jews. And so what happened? Verse 42. Let's read it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, shortly after we see this, another 5,000 are added to the church. Have you ever heard the term, I think it's fallen out of fashion now, but some of us older people still use it, called devotions? I mean, just sort of not if you've heard the term. So that's where we get this idea of devotions from. In the Old King James, it says they continued steadfastly, but uh, devotions and continuing steadfastly are the same thing. And so we're going to break down these elements. What you have just seen in a quick rundown is our story. So these two, the sermon is entitled The Basics of Christianity, so these two are basic facets of our faith, but now we get to the here and now basics of our faith. The things we are to do steadfastly. Now, if you go home and you buy a tunic, then I've really missed the mark on this. this uh, okay, some of you are awake, good. <laughs> if, so, if you go home and buy a tunic, then I've really missed the mark. Uh, but Jim, tell me, which clock is the crack time? It's, uh, it's 11.04. You mean I'm over? Rats of frets, but I didn't do too, too bad. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up um, because I uh, should. So they, <clears throat> they did what? They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That is reading the Bible, studying the Bible for us today. In that time, it was the Bible that was known, the written Bible that was known, and what the apostles could teach them because they had spent three years under the Master when he was living and their doctrine became the second part of this book that we sometimes refer to as the New Testament. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The church is a kind of fellowship, but I, I promise you that so is having a cup of coffee with your brother or sister in Christ. It's a kind of fellowship. But this is one of the easiest ways to get all these things is to be in church together. And to prayer, and prayer is pretty easy, right? I mean, that, that is to say we know what they mean by that. And so we pray a lot, but they devoted themselves to it, and, and a lot can be said about that. And then, then the breaking of bread. Now, up until Paul had to chastise the Corinthians, uh, the breaking of bread was often called a love feast as well. But it is basically... Um, the kind of thing we do after church sometimes where we eat a good meal, but it is also understood to be uh, the uh, communion. That is to say, the remembrance of the Last Supper. So those were the four basic elements, and what we see is that um, doing those things is no magic trick. 
5,000 more people were added. They continued to be the things we're supposed to do. So there you have a very quick rundown of us, Christians. If you want to know how to be a healthy church, uh, we have to do those things. And notice that not one takes priority over the other. No, sir. But they're all done in harmony, and we devote ourselves to them. And do you have that kind of life in your home? Do you do those things? If you don't, you should. We're, I'm supposed to call up the, uh, the songwriters, the song uh, leaders, and uh, then come up and say some last words. But ra rather than coming up and saying some last words, what I'd like to do instead is have the worship team come up for their final music. And then um, <clears throat> I'll just stand from where I usually sit and say a quick closing prayer. Does that work for everybody? Now, I, I, I know this wasn't um, like, wahoo! <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> wahoo is not as important as I do. Okay, so remember that too. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, O oh Lord, for this day. We pray now that as people go out into the world, into the streets, that you would bless these people of faith. And we ask these, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.